Uh, Ezra chapter 9, verse 1 through to 10, verse 17. After these things had been done, the leader came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands and spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because, your, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its people. By the detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our de evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry with, enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here, here we are before you in our guilt, though because of, it, uh, because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. 
Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan, son of Eliashib. When he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people who was, uh, were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign, foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it is a rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Josiah, son of Tikva, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they had finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. Good morning, everyone. Oh, what a great response. <laughs> Value is in the eye of the beholder. One of the things I like to do in my uh, uh, watch on my social media is a TV series called Worth It. It's based around two guys. Um, they go around traveling in search of food, and they select three, different f three foods from three very different price points, and they rate at the end of the video whether that food was worth it. Uh, and so there's an episode about uh, donuts, and they select one from a dollar to $12 and $100. And surprisingly, it's not always the most expensive that is worth it. In the same but cool way, a less cool way, I go through that same experience. I go out and look at the menu, I look at the combination of restaurants, and decide whether or not something is worth it. Ramen is something on a high contention for me. A standard bowl of ramen for me from Hakatai is about $18 now. It's not a cheap lunch. And uh, it's not, so, but I, do have, I certainly do appreciate it. But if I reduce it down to its simple elements, it's really just like a bowl of soup, noodles, two slices of pork with minimal nutritional value. Something like an instant noodle and spam can't, can't, like, could possibly replace. And so on a student budget, I would definitely agree. But I've come to a different standpoint now, a different reference point. Not as a full-time worker because I have more money, but because I've some, I'm someone that have actually tried to make it from scratch. I'm someone that likes to enjoy um, eating as much as I cook. And so anything that I can make at home, 
I'm less inclined to pay retail price for it, but I failed miserably at making this ramen. I failed so hard that I spent, and spent so much time, the result is that I wouldn't even bother trying it again, I wouldn't even consider. So now a proper, proper bowl of ramen for, 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 this, for simple ingredients, the time required, and the experience to master it, I can now eat a bowl of ramen for $18 and say that it is worth it. We go through life making the similar decisions, questioning whether the choices was or not worth it. From the simple of choices, like the food we eat, or the choice to follow our dreams, our career, we might look back and decide whether or not it's worth it. And so with chapter 9 and 10, with um, the, end of the end of the book of Ezra, we're left with this ab abrupt ending. And I wonder if, if Ezra himself questioned or not the journey is worth it. Throughout the sermon series, we have learned that Israel has uh, been sent into exiles by Babylon for their disobedience. We have chapter uh, 3 to 6 with Zerubbabel leading the people to build an altar and then its foundation and subsequently the rest of the temple. And then its foundations, and, um, and they face setbacks, opposition, but they do rebuild the temple. The chosen people of Yahweh um, cannot... Uh, the chosen people of Yahweh cannot be themselves without God. They valued their relationship, and this is why they built their altar first, foundation, and temple, so they can first um, burn offerings and restore the relationship. Of course, the root of the disobedience um, can, doesn't change. The Israelites need to live a reformed way of life. Then we are introduced with um, Ezra in chapter um, 6 to 8, the next leader, he was from the very lineage of Aaron, the chief priest, the brother of Moses. And he's well versed in, the, in the, um, the law of Moses and was a teacher himself. He was appointed by the next king, the, prince, uh, the king of uh, Persia, to lead the people, to bring about a spiritual renewal, a hope amongst the exile. But Ezra too faced opposition, challenges, and, and finds the, um, and couldn't find like, the special priest that he needs um, and also to bring back the valuables back to the temple. The mission ultimately was successful and the exiles do escape ca captivity. They throw this huge celebration and burn sacrifices in honor of God. And any standard storyline should have the story end there. What we should understand from this um, from this point, is that the history of Israel is that they've been exiled for 70 years, as there's been another 60 years between Zerubbabel um, and, uh, and Israel. And for many, Babylon is all they've known. The exiles carried on their way of life. Um, however, Israel, as a scholar and a teacher, knew, knew better, and he knew um, the, the history that they've come through. See, Basically, Ezra felt like he'd experienced uh, Exodus 2.0. Israel was also once captives to Egypt. Um, through God's intervention, their captors released them. Pharaoh let them, take, let, them, let them take their valuables and their belongings. And then they wandered the desert for 40 years in exile before entering the promised land. This is the same with Israel now. Captives of Babylon, through God's intervention of the kings, He's released and given their valuables, and they made and they were made they were made exiles by God's grace, and now they're called back into God's presence again. We have to remember that 
it's Israel that's actually the problem child. In the book of Exodus, Israel is basically a whining baby, complaining about how they're too hungry, too thirsty, and they'd rather go back to Egypt and be captives than to consider to continue to be in exile. All the while, God had freed them from slavery, part of the Red Sea, given them manna from the sky, water from a rock, pillar of fire and cloud for navigation. Since the beginning of time, God has been at work, merciful and gracious. But this is how, it, this is how God sees, this is the God that Ezra sees. So this is where we pick up the narrative from chapter 9. When he hears the Israelites have disobeyed, broken the laws by marrying women from foreign lands, we see his response in verse 3. He tore his tunic and cloak, pulls out his hair and beard. Could you imagine the pain? Ezra sat there, overwhelmed, unable to gather himself and find an appropriate response. Sure, it was the leaders and the officials that had led Israel down this path, but wasn't Ezra being a bit overdramatic? Ezra himself didn't actually marry a foreigner. What does he know that we don't that responds this way? Could you imagine a scenario where you might actually not be part of, but actually respond the same way in verse 3? The underlying issue of marrying a uh, foreigner is found multiple times in verse 2, well, their unfaithfulness. Chapter 10, 2, unfaithful. Verse 6, unfaithfulness to the exiles. Verse 10, unfaithful. What's the big deal? Well, their unfaithfulness was not, um, was not that they had um, neighboring spouses, but to the very God that made them special. They had defiled, defiled their own marriage with God because of the women that the, uh, because of the, the women from neighboring countries also brought idols into their marriage. Not only did they defile the sanctity of a relationship, but they did this in spite of everything that has happened so far in Israel. And we find this in verse 7. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subject to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of the foreign kings as it is today. From the exiles of their ancestors to their very own exiles to, from Babylon, Israel continues to fall short. A lot of people generalize the Old Testament as that God is an angry God. But what people misunderstand is how disobedient the Israelites are. And, all that, uh, and despite of God's mercy and faithfulness, Ezra knows this, and we read this in verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant, giving us a firm place in his sanctuary, so that our God gives us light in our eyes and the relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and return its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now here we are again, forsaking his commands. Ezra appeals to God and intercedes for the people. Israel was punished to live in exile because of their sin and disobedience. We could have been left in captivity, and, or they could have been left in captivity and slavery. 
left abandoned, never to be redeemed again. If God was less of God, more of human, surely, surely he would have wiped out his people from the history books. But the last, last remaining Israelites, but the last remaining Israelites, Israel confesses, we are before you in guilt, though because not one of us can stand in your presence. Ezra is an appointed leader. He's supposed to be the hero. He's supposed to bring about hope and spiritual reform. But he's feeling lost, weak, without, and he's put in this really difficult position, unlike the role that he's supposed to be. I think he feels disappointed because he feels personally responsible for the failure of keeping the nation holy. He feels frustrated as, as well at the same time. He doesn't have a solution to the problem of their sin. However, I think that his, this, his heart in the prayer is really on point. He doesn't water down the sin, but confesses it. He brings it to light. He doesn't, um, he doesn't give excuses, but appeals to God in prayer. And this is an act of love displayed in grace. He's not judgmental to sinners, but identifies the sin as a result of punishment from God. And there's something to be learned here as a congregation. If we know a brother or sister in Christ is and has compromising their relationship with God, we know we should say something. But I love Ezra's personal reaction to it. That is his passion in prayer. The passion for sanctity is there. That first carried out in prayer. Yes, we need to say the right things in love, but let it be known that God is the one that judges. Ezra appeals on behalf and together with them in prayer that God will remain good, faithful, and merciful. For anyone that's on the receiving end of rebuke or teaching, know that it comes from a place of love. The words are often hard to swallow. Sometimes it feels really personal. This is just a suggestion should it happen, but take a moment to hear the heart of the prayer. Sometimes action to rebuke and correction is poorly executed, but it's not from a place of judgment, but from a fellow brother or sister in Christ that is walking beside you, caring for your sanctity. It's not an easy thing to rebuke, and we find the response of the people in, verse, uh, in chapter 10. A large crowd of men, women, and children heard Israel's prayer. They too wept bitterly. This is the heart of conviction. Ezra's, Ezra's words has opened the hearts of Israel's, revealing that the state that they were in. They understand more how broken they are. Then one of them makes suggestions and stands up making covenant with God to send away their women and children. I wish the story had actually ended with them with a prayer of confession, a desire to change, and just more burnt offerings. But the story here takes a huge nosedive. I appreciate Israel's commitment. Their attempt to restore the relationship with God. One of the men in the, one of the, men in the crowd stands up and, and bursts out a suggestion to send away the women and children away. I was horrified with this response to say the least, but I read it initially and I judged the Israel disgust. How could they possibly make such a suggestion? 
How could they even consider sending away their women and children? Their very seed, their very blood, had they no love? Why did they show no sadness or hesitation? They respond to Ezra's prayer of confession with bitter tears, yet the suggestion is backed by a poor understanding and irresponsibility. Did you you see their response in chapter 10, verse 3? Now, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and children and their children in accordance with the counsel of of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. Take this matter into your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. Let it be done according to the law. The law does not allow for divorce. How did they come to this even conclusion? Ezra, rise up. Take this matter into your hands. We will support you. What a bunch of spineless cowards. They make the suggestion and then they let Ezra deal with it. They don't actually make the decision themselves. But this is what I've come to realize, that, Ez- that Israel had a partial understanding of the law. They knew something had to be done to restore their broken bond with God. They knew that, the great cost, that, that there was a great cost for, uh, to pay for the sins that separates them from God. And I want to share with us a reference from Malachi 2, 11 to 16. It's a bit of a long one. Judah has been unfaithful, and detestable thing has been done in Israel, in Jerusalem. The men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. May the Lord cut off the Israel, nation of Israel, every last man who has done this, and yet brings an offering to the Lord of our heaven's armies. Here is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because he pays no attention to your offerings, and he, does, he doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed and the vows you and your wife made when you were young, when you have been unfaithful to her. Though she remains your faithful partner, your wife of your marriage vows, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife in body and the spirit that you are, you are his? And, he does, and what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart, remain loyal to your wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of the heavens army. So guard your heart, do not be unfaithful to your wife. I want us to take note here what God's stance is here on divorce. He hates divorce. But the part that I do want to focus is God's response to the sacrifice. He does not accept their worship. This is God's response to their disobedience. People are mistaken for when bad things happen, that God is angry, that he disciplines his people. God's, he, his anger burns with, with, for the right reasons, a righteous anger. Anger is not opposite of love. That is indifference, to have no emotions for. This is what it means to be broken and separated from God. Can you imagine what your life would be like? Can you imagine that when you are in trouble and your shouts for help are ignored, 
Or perhaps you're in pain and, you, and your desire for comfort is ignored. Or when you're lost and your calls for answer are ignored. I've shared with you this morning about the emotions of Ezra and the Israelites. But I also want to touch on the possible emotions of the women and children. We're not given any description on how the women and children feel from the narrative. But I do want us to imagine how it might feel. So just imagine for a moment that if your father abandoned you by choice, perhaps there are some of us that have grown up without, children, without our dads being present from an early age. But imagine the sole reason your father consciously decides to, to send you away is because he wants to be closer with God. The concept is disgusting. It sickens me to say the least. Why should the women and children be victims of this choice? It's cruel. And the point of the exercise is to bring, and the, the, the point of the exercise to bring about these disturbing emotions is to highlight two points. First is that the effects of sin can cause a lot of pain for many reasons and greater than what we could imagine. And second is that how the Israelites value their relationship with God. The attempt to redeem themselves is poorly executed, but I do want to highlight that their heart and their relationship and what God is worth to them. There is a teaching that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 18, uh, 9, and that if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown in the fires of hell. And this is Israel's um, approach. They think that their wives is the result of their sin, so their solution is to send away their wives. The irony is that their unfaithfulness to God is what's broken their relationship. Their broken understanding of the law brings about a, a solution that ends in divorce. What God hates, um, their broken understanding of the law brings about a solution that ends in divorce, which God also hates. The Israelites live under the law. It requires them to bring sacrifice. Ultimately, it changes nothing. They are in an endless and vicious cycle of helplessness. It's easy to live as, um, as the beneficiaries of Jesus' death and resurrection and judge the Israelites. But know this, the, call to restore, at the, co the cost to restore the relationship with God comes at a great cost. The Israelites need God. They have, they have never been a strong nation without God's mighty hand. They would have also burnt sacrifices and praised God when they would have, yeah, they would have burnt sacrifices and praised God when they prevailed in the Old Testament. Israelite, Israel would have um, would do anything to restore the relationship with God. They were unrelenting of this. They were the very chosen people of God. Yahweh led them out of exile from captivity to a promised land, a covenant that they would be made the greatest nation, descendants, more descendants than the stars. Without this, without this God, the nation of Israel would be nothing. Their relationship with God was the utmost importance. This is why they would send their wives and children away without a second thought. They valued their God above all things. This is, what you, this is what you do when you value something. You forego, pass, pass up things that you value more because it's worth it. 
So the rest of chapter 10 goes on to describe what they proposed. They, and by, chapter, uh, by verse 17, by the first day of the month, yeah. so for the rest of chapter 10, they go on to describe what they had proposed. Verse 17, the first day of the month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. Like, yep, they've done something honorable, they've completed a task. And all, are the Israelites better any better for making this covenant with God? Of course not. The book of Ezra, Ezra started with so much hope, and this is how it ends. Broken men making a broken covenant, trying to fix a broken problem. Has the rebuilding of the temple even been worth it? Has the return from exile been worth it? Has anything up until this point to the present day been worth it? If I look at what's happened in Jerusalem and Hamas, the war that's still happening in Ukraine, if I look at the youth crime that's happening in Australia, if I look at the brokenness of our late friend and his passing, if I look at the brokenness of my own sin, I too feel like I want to pull out my own hair and my beard and sit here and lament at the brokenness of everything. I don't think I could get up. What's the hope of anything? Anything by our own efforts since the beginning of humanity is pointless, worthless. But the only answer that I have to keep going on with each day is because God says it's worth it. Without grace, without Jesus, by our own means, we are no more different than the Israelites the payment for disobedience to God is permanent separation from Him. Yet since the beginning of creation, Israel has been um, disobedient to God countless times. Countless times God is merciful. Countless times um, us Gentiles have been disobedient. We know this because the law reveals how we have been disobedient. We worship the works of our hands placing too much importance in relationship, our studies, our, our careers, and possibly even our children. These things, these things fall, these things fall um, in, often into the, uh, the Ten Commandments. Then there are the other co- commandments. Recall the times that we've, co- uh, we've caused pain through the lies that we tell the, to the ones that we love. Even though they might not know it, ultimately, trust is broken. Or recall the times that you might feel or might feel lust or jealousy over the things that you really wish, how you long for something that you really wish you had. Some of us here might not know all the Ten Commandments ourselves. I probably forgot one or two myself. But let me summarize it by asking this question. Had you ever valued something more important than God? Whether that be our financial, financial security, our passion for a career, a desire for a relationship, or simply just ourselves. If anything, including these things, including the examples, have placed God second, then we have loved him less than he deserves. Yet despite our failures, the hurt that we have caused, the, the countless lies we tell, the pointless attempts to be better people, 
God still willingly gave up his only begotten and perfect son. He has planned this even before creation, making a promise to Moses. Jesus knowingly still accepted death on the cross. And when he was nailed on the tree and he cried, it is finished, it's not that he knew that we would stop sinning, but that the payment for sin is forever paid. The cycle of endless sacrifices has been broken. Jesus and the church made together as one. We are a sinful people, but Jesus does all of this because he first loves us. He values us and says that we are worth it. And at the beginning of the message, I share with you the value of a bowl of ramen changed with my perspective. And in the same way, I hope that this message has given you a new perspective to your Christian walk, or perhaps God in a new light. I want to stress that it's not just about me creating guilt and then for you to turn to Christ. That's the point of the Ten Commandments. It's to reveal our sins, if not already done clearly. I'd like for every one of us to see that God has always been merciful. He has been doing this since the beginning of time. My hope is that we may value our relationship with God as much as the Jews, but even more so that we might better love God because His grace is abounding. Let me close in prayer. Father, we are such sinful people. We are such broken people. And we are in this broken world. We have tried so many things. We try Bible reading. We try um, to, to be more prayerful, um, to do less bad deeds and do more good deeds. Uh, but none amount to that. What can we bring to the table, Lord? What could we do for you? that you haven't already done for us. Lord, nonetheless, you call us. You call us as your children. You call us sons and daughters. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Ten Commandments. We thank you for creation that reveals, and thank you for your son Jesus that revealed to us the love that you have displayed. Lord, may we always see your goodness um, through your discipline, through your blessings, uh, through all that you do in our lives, each big and small thing, know that you are at work, um, and may we always turn to you, um, knowing that the comforter in this uh, broken world, uh, that you have done it all. Amen. So, in closing, uh, take a few moments to think and pray. Uh, or even just to reflect on some of these questions. That the effects of sin is great, and the, effect, and the consequences of sin is great. But how much greater is, is Christ, that he has dealt with our sin? How much does God value us and call us children? How much do we value him to call him our father and savior? And then is our journey with God worth it?
thanks Cork for bringing us a message. And um, yeah, it's a heavy message. And uh, 